0: And we continue here with our American stories. And now it's time for our Rule of Law series, where our own Alex Cortez brings us stories about what happens when the rule of law is present or absent in our lives. And today we hear from a guy from Westchester, Pennsylvania, named Kevin Gates.
1: We're now going off the record.
2: Having heard the approval of both attorneys to go off the record at this time, The time is approximately 8.44 p.m. We are off the record. So after a long day of a deposition where it's highly adversarial, it's highly riddled with conflict and with a prosecutor who simply doesn't know what he's asking about or what he's talking about, but he's making his intentions very clear that he just really doesn't care. So after a day-long deposition, they asked me to leave the room. And this is when I had an energy bar attorney representing me. And he came out uh, 10 minutes later and relayed the message from the government attorney, who said, Kevin's a businessman, isn't he? He knows that it's cheaper to settle than it is to fight this investigation. And when he relayed that to me, and I was just like felt like the weight of the world on my shoulders. I'm like, oh my gosh, all that I've worked for, the government can just take it away because it can. Not because it should or it's right, but just because it can. And I guess it was that night on the on the train ride home I said, you know what? It's not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen. I'm gonna I'm gonna fight this because I can
3: Kevin Gates is in the less than 3% of people who refuse to settle with the government when they come after you. Here's the man and Eagle Scout that they should have thought twice
2: about. We are the youngest of six. I guess my childhood is uh, very similar to Rich's.
3: Oh yeah, Kevin is an identical twin. The government will be taking on two of them. Here's Rich.
1: Our mother was diagnosed with cancer when we were in second grade. She ended up passing away when we were in seventh grade.
2: We knew it was terminal. I remember having very clear conversations when we were in fourth or fifth grade, our mom shown us how to do our own laundry and do the dishes and said, you know,
1: one day when I'm dead and buried, you're gonna need to learn how to do this stuff. I remember not understanding it's, and then, but you have a different perspective when you have your own kids. When each of my kids, got through some part of the seventh grade, I I notified each one of them and said, this is how old I was the day that my mother passed away. Our father, he was incredible. Also during that time when our
2: mother had cancer, he lost his job. So I remember that as being a pretty interesting time. I didn't fully, couldn't even begin to comprehend the magnitude of the stress and the pressure that both of my parents were under. But I remember my, my dad taking long walks when he was unemployed. When our mom passed away, my dad did remarry to a woman who unfortunately also later passed away to leukemia as well. My dad lost two wives and he also lost two sons as well.
1: So I was a chemical engineer.
2: We were both went to University of Virginia, applied to the engineering school, and
1: then Right out of school, ended
2: up working at Capital One. And right out of school, that was right when Capital One was starting.
1: Um, And I think the big thing for me is I realized that I wanted to work for myself. We'd started several businesses by that time. We were importing rugs from Guatemala. So I had this kind of entrepreneurial bug.
2: In my early 20s, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And this is kind of, um, I was working in a cubicle and not not loving it. I don't think I'm well-suited for standard corporate America, and as a hobby, started trading in the equity market because it was fun and interesting, but we didn't have any money to invest. I graduated with a negative net worth. I had student loans. I had a car loan, but the way that we worked it out was we applied for as many credit cards as we could. So I think I was 24 years old, had a negative net worth and I may have had 15
1: or 20 credit cards in my wallet. And ended up starting a business with my brother and it was buying and selling in the stock market.
2: So we get along probably 90, you know seven ninety eight percent of the
1: time, but when we don't get along, we can really fight. It was awkward. I remember it was at the office when we got into some disagreement and we ended up in like a wrestling match and maybe punching each other. And I remember the our colleagues kind of just looking at us thinking, what how do you handle this one?" And we, I think we decided somewhere around there that you know we we have to outgrow that. The good news is
2: i'm forty seven years old and it's been over a decade since we've had a fist fight, so we're're we're, we're maturing.
3: In 2008, the Gates Brothers started trading in an energy market called PJM, which enables utility companies to reduce the risks of their investments and therefore enables them to offer lower prices to us. Who knew trading could be such a good thing? And one day, when the twins received something called a rebate payment that was now being offered to everyone participating in the market, including investors, it made their trading even more attractive, so naturally they increased it. But as Eagle Scouts would, these guys were so ethical that they did
2: something unusual first. So after we got the retroactive rebates in the fall of 2009, we contacted PJM to confirm that they had intended to send us that. And, you know, this is the complete opposite of the behavior of somebody who's committing a fraud. We are open and transparent with the market.
1: A trader who called the market setter confirmed the specifics of these rebates. He was then asked to stop by a market monitor, and he did. I don't know that he had a legal obligation to stop, but he's a good player. He's a good person. He's an individual who's trying to work with the government and trying to follow the rule of law and trying to be responsible or is responsible.
3: But the government regulator, the FERC didn't see it that way. And in 2010, opened an investigation into the Gates Brothers company
2: Powhatan. We had no way of knowing that what they're now accusing us of was unlawful. To the contrary, their own statements predicted and effectively encouraged this exact behavior. But then they go after the fact and go after the people who responded to the incentives that they created. It's, it's unbelievable. We continue to get data requests from the government. They brought me down later that year for a deposition. And I remember, still at that time, not fully appreciating any issues of what took place. So I was sent a request to answer questions. I packed up my bags and you know left work and went down to Washington, D.C. I went the night before to meet with the attorneys who we had engaged, and they wanted to help prep me for the deposition, Uh, and I thought it was overkill. I thought the whole investigation was a joke. I I knew it was a joke. Uh, The trades were so simple and straightforward. There was nothing here. I didn't understand why I felt I needed to be prepped for something that was so easy. It it felt like a a waste of time, because I thought, Okay, of course, they're going to ask me a couple questions. I'm going to give them the answers, and then they're going to let me go home. You know, I was kind of intrigued by the whole process, but never in my mind did I contemplate that uh, that it would later turn out the, the way that it had, it had done. Because in my mind, yeah, okay, I'll go down, I'll waste one day of my life, but it'll kind of be a cool learning experience. I'll go down to, to Washington and explain to these guys what we were doing. And that'll be the end of it. And then they'll thank me for my time, thank me to, you know, the service to help them out. And then they'll let me go.
0: And you've been hearing the story of the Gates brothers, Kevin and Rich Gates, entrepreneurs doing everything right. And by the way, we're rooting for these guys, right? They're the underdogs, they're the little guys and the big guy they're fighting. Well, it's their own government. And by the way, the government is trying to punish the Gates brothers company, Powhatan, for something that wasn't against the law until the government decided after the fact that it should be and this is called an ex post facto law which Alexander Hamilton called in Federalist paper 78 quote the favorite and most formidable instrument of tyranny and it's why the founders explicitly forbade it in the US Constitution and that was in article 1 section 9 clause 3 and my goodness these founders were brilliant they were thinking about things like that the patent is in article 1 as well. And my goodness, think about that, that we were protecting ideas, not just property, but intellectual property. And that's why we talk about the Constitution so much here on this show and rule of law. And when we come back, let me tell you about these Gates boys. They're fighters and they weren't taking these threats with anything else but a counter threat. You threaten me. I come back at you. The Gates don't relent. And when we come back, more of their story, their fighting story, a rule of law story, here on Our American Story. we continue here with our American stories and with the story of identical twins Kevin and Rich Gates. Their trading firm Powhatan is being investigated by the government for making trades that not only weren't against the law, but were actually encouraged. Let's return to the Gates brothers and how they responded to this violation of the rule of law and their property rights.
2: Um, it wasn't the most productive communication. As a matter of fact, one of the, um, the attorneys from the government came in and fell asleep as he was sitting across the table from me. I've, I've, never, seen, I've never seen that in the private sector. I've never seen anything of the sort in the private sector. That just describes the environment that I was in. You know, they they were so unprepared that they were even willing to sleep during the deposition. They would ask me a question and I would ask for clarification and then they would move on to to something else and say, you know what, I don't even know what I was asking about. Why don't you, why don't we just go in a different direction? So it wasn't productive, but I left still not overly concerned the questions continued, and the data request, and then I was later brought down, I think it was in 2011, for a deposition with the former prosecutor, his name is Steve Tabakman. who he fell asleep in 2010. Again, I went down the night before. I was still defended by the energy bar attorney. This attorney worked in DC, and I think he had seen this story before. He, he seemed to have an idea how it was gonna unfold how the game was played in the energy bar, maybe how the games played in, in DC generally. And I think he knew the role that he wanted in it. Despite the facts that were so simple, I think he wanted me to settle. In my opinion, he didn't want to fight. He didn't seem like he was willing to do what was in my best interest, but he wanted to get paid. I think he wanted me to pay all of his fees and settle for allegations of manipulation. He took me out the night before and he introduced me to one of his partners who also charged a lot of money. I was perhaps taking the investigation more seriously because I was like, what's going on here? It's been almost a year and a half and they haven't figured out that there's not a problem here and why are they bringing me back asking me more questions? So I had a little problem sleep- I had, I had problem sleeping that night, went in the next morning and spent a full day Answering Questions by Steve Tabakman, He's a prosecutor, and I guess some prosecutors think their job is to prosecute no matter what. And I believe that's what he thought, how how he was behaving. By way of example, he would ask me questions, and when I would give an answer that didn't fit his narrative, he would just subtly nod his head back and forth, shaking it back and forth like, you know, saying, no, like, Kevin, I'm not happy with you. I mean, it can be pretty intimidating. You go in, you're sworn under oath. It can be intimidating. It is intimidating. And especially when somebody like that wields so much power, they have the weight and the resources of the government behind them. And when it's clear they don't give a damn about you or your family or the facts or the law, it's a a terrifying situation to be in. You know, over the years I've learned that when you're regulated by the FERC or the government generally, you have to play nice. Over the last decade or so, this particular agency has extracted over a billion dollars of settlements from market participants and destroyed many, many careers. And the big banks couldn't fight. Barclays, Deutsche Bank, JP Morgan, their relationship with the government is more important than any sort of facts of a case. So when the government comes knocking, they have to play nice and they have to settle even if they, in their heart of hearts, believe or know they didn't do anything wrong. Likewise, the little guys, the individual traders who have 100,000 to spend in litigation, they can't fight. And we were in this, you know, kind of this sweet middle spot where we weren't, we weren't beholden to the FERC. This was not our, at the time, was not our career. Our relationship with them was not relevant. And what was more relevant was the facts and truth and justice. Plus, we were fortunate that we had been successful in investing and we had the resources to fight. And if they had come a decade earlier, they, they very well could have bankrupted me. You have to be prepared to spend a decade of your life and probably $10 million to, to fight this. And this is money that effectively goes down the drain. It's money that you never see again. And we were just very, very lucky. Well, <laughs> lucky that we're born in America and we can fight the government, but also lucky of when it had happened and
1: we could fight for the truth. It is tough for a big company to stand up to the government. Wall Street's number one client is U.S. government. They're the ones that control their destiny, has the biggest influence on their destiny. Having said that, if more companies fought back, it would make the world a lot better off. Having this cozy relationship where the government comes and levels nonsensical allegations against your business and writing a check and giving the government good headlines it might make good decision in the short term but long term it's very costly for that business and for society at large in the original attorneys we had it was clear to me crystal clear uh, that
2: it seemed like their relationship with they had with the FERC and the people at the FERC were more important than the relationship with me the, the client It was irrelevant. I was going to pay their invoices that they sent to me, and then they wanted me to settle. But they didn't want to rock the boat at all. They didn't. I asked them early on. I said, how does this play out after I realized that the FERC didn't care about the truth or the facts? And I said, how does this play out? And they said, well, you're going to, well, you'll settle on the courtroom steps. And I said, to hell with that. I'm I'm not settling on the courtroom steps. And that's when I realized that I needed another attorney. But that was clearly what their objective was. I didn't think they were fighting for the truth, not fighting for justice, not, not fighting for right or wrong. I think they were basically just setting me up for a settlement. I remember thinking it was kind of a surreal experience because I needed their help and I felt like these high-priced attorneys just just didn't want to fight. And that's fine. I understand that if you don't want to fight and don't want to litigate and don't want to do that, just but just say that up front. Tell that up front, hey, you're important to me, but you're really not that important to me. I can try to cut you a, a good settlement deal, but I'm not willing to go to the mat and fight for this. So fired those attorneys. And we're
0: really now deeply rooting for the Gates brothers because, my goodness, what they're going through? Well, this happens all the time, folks, to American business. You may not be aware of it because you don't own businesses and it's not like your bosses are going to tell you about these things. But there are a cost to you. They're a cost to society because when they settle these unjust cases, well, they pass along the cost to customers. But the worst part of this is that it's just a total abdication of rule of law. And when we come back, We're gonna continue with the Gates Brothers saga. But know this, less than 3% of all people fight their own government in cases like this. And I think every American understands this because the agency that's over us, the federal agency, is the IRS. We've all been there where our accountant tells us, hey look, you didn't do anything wrong, but the IRS wants you to pay this, and you just better pay it. And by the way, now we know what it's like to be guilty uh, first and have to prove our innocence. And of course, the accountant always says the same thing. Just pay, and we do. And that's what so many businesses go through under their federal regulation regimes. The same exact relationship we have with the IRS. And let's just say, I don't know many Americans who love their relationship with the IRS. When we come back, the Kevin and Rich Gates saga continues. Our rule of law series continues here on Our American Story. We return to Our American Stories and to the Kevin and Rich Gates story. Let's pick up where we last left off.
1: During one point of the investigation, we had sent them legal documents, a brief describing our side of the situation. And that was sent to them on a Friday and the following Monday. They called us up and they said, we dismissed everything. They apparently read these hundreds of pages of documents and decided that everything was taken out of context. I mean, it was a very clear situation where they're trying to send us a message saying that we don't care, we're not listening, you know, what you say doesn't matter. My sense is they looked at that legal brief and said, oh, they're, you know, $150,000 lighter. If I worked for an agency or government or anywhere, I would read the information, I would try to listen. In the subsequent months or years, they asked for a document that was attached in that filing and said they would like to see it and we said well it was already in that filing and my sense is they asked for it because they never read the original filing
3: finally in 2013 three years after FERC opened the investigation they released their 28 page preliminary findings that the gates brothers firm Powhatan were market manipulators and the twins
2: had had enough Rich and I had
1: come up with the idea of sending a very short response to them. Our response to them was a two sentence response saying, your preliminary findings make no sense, was the first sentence. And that was for a reason, we had finally given up. We said, if you don't care, if you're gonna treat us this way, well, it's over, we're done.
3: Done, trying to convince the government of the truth. So the Gates brothers decided to do something radical something that no one's probably ever done before. They created a website to post all of the government's communications with
2: them, all of the filings in the case, everything for anyone to see. It was originally designed as an insurance policy against our reputations. And we said, if you're going to bully us, you're not going to do this in the back alley. We're going to drag you out on the street so that the streetlights can expose your abusive incompetent behavior with the hope or expectation of holding you accountable.
1: And some business partners appreciate what we're doing and fully understand it. But there are still are business partners that will work with us if and when these allegations eventually end and have decided not to in the interim. So, you know, there still is damage that's being done. The FERC still has caused damage to us even though we have responded the way we did and this response that we've made has been very costly very time consuming it's not what i signed up for it's not what i expected to be doing in the prime of my career is you know fighting a media campaign of my own reputation against the federal government there's been you know f- physical problems as well you know stresses from sleepless nights to gaining weight to not working out it's can be very trying The last several years since we went public with the investigation, uh, it's been very cathartic. Put us in a better position emotionally and relieved some stress. But it'll every, you know, my brother and I talk about this every single day for the last five years. When do you think it's going to end? Why hasn't it ended now? Why are they still doing this? So it's, you know, it's it's a topic of constant conversation. I mean, in a lot of ways, we're very thankful, lucky to have each other to take this fight on together. Without him, I don't know that I would have been able to do what we've done. You you compare this to what my father went through, and it's nothing. You know, losing a spouse compared to this—this is this is nothing. Um, Oftentimes, during
2: you know when there are issues in the case, I'm distracted, um, perhaps emotionally detached, and, and thinking about other things, and that's. That's not fair to
1: my wife, that's not fair to my kids. I I hope that never want anyone else to be treated this way by the federal government. We do feel like it is our calling to bring this one home and eventually help the world see what was on the other side. They finally brought charges in
2: 2015. They sent us a bill and asked us to pay them, I think it was like $35 million. settle our charges for supposedly manipulating these markets and we denied manipulation and then they sued us in court and went to a judge and said we've already kind of adjudicated this at the administrative level we just need you to kind of rubber stamp our findings which just seemed incredibly obnoxious to me because we hadn't even had a chance to ask them one question. We didn't have a neutral arbiter. We were on the defensive the whole time, you know, responding to their subpoenas and their data requests and their deposition requests, but we didn't have a chance to ask them one question. We didn't have an independent judge evaluate the merits of the case. And I don't think they really believed in that argument. And they had already lost that same argument, I think, in at least five other court cases. But I think their real objective was just to kick the can down the road and bleed us of resources. Where we are now is we're almost nine years deep into an investigation, have spent probably three, three and a half million dollars of direct expenses. And haven't had a chance to ask the government one question yet. We haven't been able to present our arguments to a judge. We're just largely on the defensive.
1: Earlier this decade, there was a unanimous decision by the Supreme Court about the statute of limitations, which basically describes how long the government can have its hooks into one of its citizens. This ruling made it seem pretty clear to me that agencies needed to bring cases to court within five years from the date when actions took place. In our case, the trading activities took place in the summer of 2010. But FERC is now arguing that this Supreme Court ruling has some ambiguity to it, and and they can bring their actions within five years after they issue something called the penalty assessment order. And it's issued at a time of their own choosing. This all explains why it's uh, 2019 and we're arguing over trades that took place almost a decade ago. The problem with their argument is that it could be an unlimited amount of time to bring charges that they could investigate for 50 years and then issue this certain filing. And and then they're saying that the clock starts ticking at that time. So to the rule of law, it it doesn't quite make no sense to me. We're incredibly fortunate that we
2: have an independent judiciary, and I think that, for the most part, the establishment works. The rule of law does ultimately prevail. That being said, the country is a lot less fair and a lot less just than I had imagined when I was younger. My wife and I were in St. Petersburg, Russia, I think three or four years ago. And just looking at the terror in the people's eyes when you started asking them any political questions. We did a two-day tour, a private tour with this woman. So the first day I was asking questions about the banking system and the government and warming her up with questions like that. And she said, basically, I don't put money in banks. I just put it in the walls of my house. And then at the end of the first day, we were talking to her about what's True. What's not true? You know, we were talking about how the government owns all the media in Russia. And she said, well, we get CNN, too. And I've I've seen things on CNN that I don't believe to be true. And then the next day I was walking with her and we brought up that comment about the media. And I forget exactly how the conversation progressed. But I said something like, oh, that's interesting, because in our country, were told that Putin murders his political opponents. And I wasn't saying that he does. You know, the fact of the matter is I I happen to believe that he does, but it doesn't, that's a moot point. I just simply stated a fact that in our country, this is what our media tells us. And she, we were walking down a path and she immediately took a right turn where there was <laughs> where there was nowhere to walk. She just wanted to get as far away from me as possible. Didn't even want to get near that conversation. And then later when we got to the garden or whatever she was showing us, she continued the tour and acted like nothing had happened. But it was clear as day that she was just terrified of her government, the fact that she wouldn't even engage in a conversation about what my media tells me about Putin. She wouldn't put money in the bank because she didn't trust the institutions of her country. I realized that, just how incredibly lucky we are to be in this country. You know, I envisioned living there and I'm sure I would have been murdered. We're just absolutely lucky that we can you know, get accused by the government of committing a fraud and respond the way that we have by publicly taking interviews and getting it engaged politically. We're, we're incredibly blessed to be able to do that. So I, I, not a day goes by that I don't appreciate that. That being said, not a day goes by that I don't realize, wow, there's a lot of opportunity for improvement here.
0: And you've been listening to the Kevin and Rich Gates story, the Powhatan story, that's their company, nine years into this battle with the government. By the way, a length of time itself that violates the rule of law. The law should be swift and fair, not dragged out forever. And by the way, it's dragged out forever to advantage the government and just wipe the resources of the little guy. Big guys can play, little guys get killed, These guys were in between and they were able to fight. They're now in court about another way the government's violated the rule of law and that is the statute of limitations which expired before the government charged them. But as the Gates said, we are fortunate to be in America where we have access to the rule of law at all. And as they so eloquently noted, in this country, we're just not afraid of our own government or we shouldn't be. The rule of law story, this time, the Kevin and Rich Gates story on Our American Stories.